Fualcha, 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 Akhartagil. This is episode 103 of the Rebel Matters podcast. I am your host, as usual, Anla O'Carlan, and today's guests on the show are James Leonard and Timmy Long, who some of you might know as the two Norries. The lads who are childhood friends started their own podcast after James was on the Tommy Tiernan show. And this chat was recorded in the back room of Ackley about four months ago. And it's a little bit late coming out because of the fact that I took a bit of a break from making the podcast there for a while. So this is kind of the first episode getting back on track, except for the wee short one that I did last week myself. I'm really grateful to Timmy and James for taking the time to record this chat with me and also for being so open and honest and sharing their personal stories with us. I first met the lads whenever I was on the Two Norries podcast earlier in the year so it was great to be able to get them onto the Rebel Matters podcast and to show them around Ackley as well. Before we get stuck into the chat with James and Timmy I just want to say a massive thank you to everyone who's been in contact over the last couple of weeks from we got the podcast back on the road and a special shout out to all of our supporters over on Patreon who make the Rebel Matters podcast possible. If you're interested in becoming a patron of the show, then you can go to www.patreon.com forward slash Rebel Matters and see the various tiers of support that are available there. I'm really looking forward to sharing this episode with you and I'm also really glad that James and Timmy are the sort of the first episode back as we try and build a bit of momentum back into the Rebel Matters podcast again. It was actually quite hard to record the episode last week just because I'm so out of practice with making the podcast and so out of practice at talking into the microphone. So I'm hoping that over the coming weeks that the cobwebs get blown off and we can... Um, get the wind back into the seals but for now enjoy this episode with Timmy Long and James Leonard aka the two Norries. From the same state, so we're like mm-hmm. a few doors away from each other. That's all. So did you know each other when you were kids? Yeah, my mum and his mum used to be really good friends, and I, I'm the same age as his younger brother, John Paul. So I would spend a lot of time in their house growing up, and then I would have been friends with the, another brother, Tommy. So kind of, and he's Timmy's uh, my brother Keith's age. Would have been in the same class, and then Timmy would have, you know, so it's, yeah. We know each other very well, I suppose. The families would, the families would have always been friendly. I suppose what what James is really saying is, we grew up in a really tightness kind yeah. of community as well. Growing, you know, when we were kids, we grew up in the eighties. Yeah, you know, James would have been in a few years, the eighties and nineties. Yeah, and back then, like working class areas, they were just they, everybody. Like you could knock on anybody's door and ask them for 
a bit of sugar or a drop of milk. You know, in my case, I used to wait. I used to sneak out at seven o'clock in the morning and take the neighbor's milk from the door. <laughs> you know, but um, you know, uh, yeah, we were we were a very very close community. You know, everybody kind of knew everybody. We'd all hang around with each other, and even some of the best some of the best times in that community was uh, you know bonfire night, twenty third of June. Bonfire Yeah, bonfire night. Yeah, traditionally, like in that, it's not it's not like that anymore. But traditionally. Even the neighbours that didn't really like you, on bonfire night, everybody would come out and you'd sit on the old couches and burn the palace and the trees and you'd be drinking with the neighbours. The day, the day before, they wouldn't look at you and the day after, they wouldn't look at you. But for that night, every was a real sense of community. But bonfire night, is, or bonfire night is seen now as a litter spot and people don't, don't want to have the bonfires anymore. But I think you lose that sense of community, you know. You don't have that focal point of... As something you know, like a bonfire or an occasion, and you know, I suppose in this day and age, it's very much about the individual, isn't it? We were just saying there before we started recording that me and my brother Carver lived up in Fair Hill for a while. Yeah, we just around the corner. We kind of came down the court first, and it genuinely, I've been living in Cork now for eleven years, and it was the only place really that I felt kind of at home. And the, I remember sitting and, as I was saying, days getting the bus up further one day and just looking around all the old people were talking to each other mm-hmm. like they've been getting that bus up and down there for years yeah. and the, it reminded me of when, you know, when you're a teenager and say West Belfast and you start going out with someone mm-hmm. and it's always your granny knows yeah. their granny and yeah. all the different stories about the family and all as Cork City grew um, we say Cork, like where we are now city centre Southside and then into Blackpool, they're all kind of all parts of Cork City. But then as Cork City grew, the northwest, which is where we're from, Fair Hill, like where you live, Knocknahini, Halley Hill, Churchfield, Grand Braha, and on the northeast you would have the Glen, Mayfield, Dublin Hill. Um, traditionally working class areas, a lot of people are employed in industries like Fords and Dunlops and all these, they all crashed in the 80s, you know. So all these working class areas, all of a sudden there was no jobs in the 80s, and what happens when you have loads of houses and loads of families that no work? You just have social problems, you know. And it's the same in, in Belfast and Dublin and Limerick, you know, where you have whole loads of families, no work, people turn to alcohol, people turn to crime, and, you know, that's the way it was. Mm. Do you think there's still a big difference in the amount of investment that goes into the north side of Cork City compared to the south side? Can you imagine, right, in the height of a pandemic, they closed South Dock in the north side? and ask people from the north side to use South Dock in Kinsale Road. Now, can you imagine the height of a pandemic? They closed South Dock, which is an out-of-hours GP service, right, for people that's not from Cork. Can you imagine they closed South Dock for the middle-class people on the south side? The people in Rochestown, Ballancolic, Douglas. Um, imagine they had no out-of-hours GP service. It wouldn't happen. It would not happen. You know, all the universities, all the hospitals... With one bank in the north side, you know, in the south side you have a south ring road, so you don't have all the traffic going through the populated estates. In Nakhnehini, where we're from, Harbour Road, you have people avoiding city centre coming through. There's so many crashes up there, deaths and everything. We we know Northern Ring Road, so the north side is neglected, and that's a fact. And there was something funny there the other day. My cousin is a, a Sinn Féin TD. He's the first TD from Nakhnehini. Right, Thomas Gould, and he posted something on Twitter last week, and it was the cycle pathway plan for Cork City, you know, and it showed a map, an aerial map of Cork City, and it showed all the cycle paths, and now it was like 
a, a whole cobweb of veins for the south side, city centre and south side, and you had one cycle path for the north side going up Cathedral Road to Apple and no more. And it just showed you that's one example of the neglect and you know how different parts of the cities are resourced separately or differently. Why do you think that is? I don't know. Um, possibly because some of the people that are inside in the offices that make all these decisions come from outside of the, these areas, you know, like um, Granerbrother, Nocknahaney, you know, Mayfield, the Glen, you know, and we're not really trying to blame anybody, but for things to be really level across the board, you know, we need people from every area of the city inside in these meetings making decisions about what goes where and this goes there, you know, but if you haven't and you have it all one-sided, it's never going to work. You're going to have everything in one area and nothing in the other area, and that's what it is. That's think, what it actually looks like. And I like. think there's a sense of apathy as well amongst people in working-class areas, a feeling of the government, doesn't matter what you do, the government will always be the same. Um, and the government make decisions based on the strength of that, and they know that they can neglect the north side because they know that uh, TDs like Thomas Gould and Mick Barry, people for profit, they find it very hard to mobilise the people in the community. And in our community, like you might have 15, 20% turnout for the vote, do you know what I mean? And the government can implement all these policies and uh, social policies, stuff like that. They're looking after their own voters, do you know what I mean? And that's the problem, I think, a sense of apathy. You have a lot of... You, you, within our community as well, there's a lot of... There's a lot of people with struggles in their lives, you know, on a daily basis, from addictions, mental health problems. No, that's not saying it's everybody across the board in every city has the same problems, but within our community, it is a lot more than anywhere else in the city, you know. And I was speaking to a guy there today, and he was saying that 2% of the college population in Cork come from the north side of the city, like, you know, 2%, you know. That just shows how many people come from our secondary schools and, and go to the CIT or UCC or anything else. Those figures are, are, are and very then, poor. And then we're way overrepresented in the more negative stats, like if you go into Cork prison and you're looking at people from the north side, generally, you know, uh, Cork North Lee with the HSE district for Cork, you have South Lee where we are now, North Lee where we're from, the highest rates of prescription for benzodiazepine and antidepressants in the whole country. Do you know what I mean? Why is that? It's not everybody's depressed up there. It's it's just a, a, like a medicalization of poverty. It's like the answer to people's problems. And like in, in sociology, you have the term structural violence. It's like social policy that creates a trauma amongst the community. And when people then get depressed because they don't see their prospects or hopes, then they go to the doctor and then the answer is antidepressants and Valium. And that's why you have, it's like there's a huge correlation between Poverty, social exclusion, and rates of prescribing for antidepressants. It's like treating the symptoms rather than exactly. getting down and treating the problem. What the problem is trauma. Yeah, the problem is what's stored within the body. All these negative experiences and 
not positive influences in, in people's lives growing up and grief, you know, and just looking, kids looking at stuff when they're young, they, sh- they should have no, they shouldn't be seeing, you know, and that's what's going on, you know, it, like I've, I think in the north side of the city and other areas of the city that there's a lot of poverty and drug addiction and whatever else, there should be more of a focus on the younger kids kids that are developing, kids that are from one years of age to six or seven years of age. There should be more care and attention going to those kids where they're taught inside in schools and crashes and early early day early centres, you know, and um, how to manage different experiences in their lives, manage emotions, feelings. You know, like I in my own life I was completely cut off from all these things at six or seven years of age because of the trauma that was going on in my life at home, the violence, the abuse in all these different areas. You know, I completely cut off. But what's to say, if we had a crash where you have, say, a child psychologist over the crash and they know exactly what's going on to this child and they don't know how, how to build this child's self-esteem, confidence... They're things we need to look at. These are things that you have in countries in Norway and Sweden within their crashes. You know, we need to start looking at things like that in our country and start watching the people that we're putting into mind our kids. So our kids may not be getting that good development skills inside the family home, but they are getting them inside in these places. That's where I'm looking at. That's my that's that, that's where I would be a, a massive advocate for is catch the kids when they're young and help them then you know because from the age of one even younger than one a child is sponging every single bit of information and there's a saying goes show me the child that ate and there you go there's the man you know and it's so true because all my core beliefs as an adult when I got clean and sober and I looked at all these different things through meetings with psychotherapists and psychologists and all these different you know, people who taught me about life and taught me about the effects of trauma in my own life and in my adult life now, you know, these things, this is where we need to look at. It's like they're putting so much work into the teenagers and whatever, like, and they're expecting them to change after all this shit already after happening. There's no trust there. They have no trust because of what's already after happening in their lives. They're completely cut off. You know, and they're putting all these resources into it. Why not put the resources into the child? You know, I am very passionate about this, to be honest, because of my own experiences and there was nothing there for me, you know. And I think if we look at that, no, we'll have a society in 20 years time, right, where we'll have kids that have good development skills. No matter what has gone on at home, they've spent six or seven hours a day, right, inside in a crash where they were really getting care from uh, the people that were well enough and able to teach these kids. You know, that's where we need to be looking. How did you end up starting the podcast in the first place? I was on the Tommy Ternan show in January last year. Um, and when I was on that, this is my version of it anyway, Timmy might have a different version, but it was on the Tommy Turner show last year, speaking about my experiences of addiction and growing up and recovery and stuff like that. And there was a huge response to that. So I was very overwhelmed by the amount of people who contacted me 
So I was, I was getting last asked through a lot of media, documentaries, podcasts, radio, and I just said no to everybody. And Timmy says, we should do our own podcast. Why don't we do our own podcast? And I was like, I was after mentioning it to my wife and she was laughing at me, you know. But no, Timmy was after mentioning I was like, yeah, this is it because I've been thinking about this. So we just said, you know what, we just fucking go for it. And that's really how it happened. You know, it was mm-hmm. just an idea. Timmy mentioned it and I was like, fuck it, let's do it. Do you know where it came from? That idea came from for me. That came from an, an ayahuasca session, believe it or not. Because uh, I would have been completely... I, I've never been on social media in my life. I would have been the most private, James, I tell you this, I would have been the most private person that you could possibly imagine. You know, I, I, I was never on Facebook. I was never on Twitter, Instagram, any of these things, Snapchats. I didn't even know what they were. I wouldn't even know how to get into one of these websites or whatever they're called, apps, right? And then all of a sudden, this happened during an ayahuasca session. And I couldn't, I, I couldn't, it was so real. It, it was so real that I couldn't not do it. I was completely consumed with fear when my own first, two, my, I gave my own story, the first two episodes of, of our podcast. Um, but there was this voice, it was like a female in the background just kept reassuring me, it's okay. This is what you're supposed to be doing. It's okay. Feel everything. It's okay. And my head was fucking racing. My head was saying, oh, do you know, when you're putting yourself out there like that, you know, and like the feedback could have been fucking mm. terrible. It could, a lot of people, it, it could have destroyed me. It could have destroyed my family. It could have destroyed my wife and my kids, you know. But it just felt like I had to do it, you know. And, and, and when I say this now in the... I was very, very private. I kept myself completely to myself, you know, you know, because when I was caught up in alcohol and drugs and crime, crime was a massive part of it as well for me, you know, and I was fucking nuts, like, you know, I was completely nuts. I couldn't do anything to anybody. I fighting fucking everybody. And we were speaking about this will go with another person, a friend of ours. You know, I had the angriest demeanor that you could possibly see in a human being. And that demeanor was my protective uh, mechanism that I'd built up down through the years to keep people away from me, you know, because of, of, of being hurt so many times as a young child, you know, by di- different people in my life. And I built up this big macho man full of tattoos, muscles, and a really angry demeanor, you know. I had no love in my body for me or for anybody else, you know. And um, all that's changed in the last nine and a half hours, you know. And, and that my version of it is, is is the exact same as James's. I see the amount. I called him to James one day, and we had for a cup of tea. This was all after the Tommy Tiernan show and. He said to me, like, fucking hell, I'm getting fucking thousands of, of, of calls and emails and whatever these, from people that seen James on, on the show and, and they could see that there is another life after drug addiction, you know. And he was in education, he was just finishing his degree and he was going to do a master's and things like that at the time. And, and she said, why? Like, I had it in my head at this stage of the podcast 
And I said, well, like, this was a great opportunity because GM's opened up the door for all, everybody else because we see the reaction he got, you know. And and I said, you know what? Why fucking not? Why not? And we went for it. We went for it. So It's a risky thing to do. Yeah. Put yourself out there. Even when I was going on the Tommy Town and like you might be familiar with the show, Tommy doesn't know who the guests are. He's not briefed. We never met. There's no producer and he's there telling them what to say. So when I'm waiting to go on to the show, I'm thinking, what's Tommy's, Tommy's experiences with drug users? Was his house ever robbed? Was he ever moked? You know, is he going to be, is this going to be hard? Do you know what I mean? Is it going to be normal? See, mm-hmm. is it going to be awkward? Um, but I just said to myself, do you know what? I'm actually, I, they asked me to come on. Do you know what I mean? They asked me to come on. I didn't ask them to come on. Um, I'm doing it for the right reasons. And when Timmy was coming on the podcast and giving his story, I, I know what I felt, you know, it's very risky to do. Mm-hmm. Is there going to be a lot of people that you upset that you forgot about come at you? But no, people actually, you just be be yourself. And somebody said to me, just be yourself, just be yourself, James, be yourself, Timmy. And people kind of respond to that authenticity. So yeah, they have fucking colourful backgrounds, but they, they're doing what they can today to make amends. And people, in for the, for the most part, people are very respectful mm-hmm. of for us, aren't they? Yeah, yeah, people, like, the amount of people that contact us and thank us for sharing our stories and having other people on sharing their stories because no, no, no two stories are the same. What worked for me will not work for another person, you know? So we tried to open up the variety of guests as much as we possibly can because their story may help the person that my story didn't help. Does that make mm-hmm. sense? Sure. Um, we had a guy, we had Gabor Matt, Dr. Gabor Matt, which was a big coup for us because he's like a leading expert in the world around trauma and addiction. Um, but the idea for him is me and Timmy know Gabor Matt. We've read the books, we've watched the seminars, I went to the conferences, wasn't for my benefit or the professionals watching benefit because we already know. But the best thing about it is people that watch our podcast would be people that have never went to university or, or don't work in the professions that of the care and professions and now all of a sudden they're watching Gabba Martin they're here and there was one lady contacted me the next morning and she's suffering with lupus since she's a child and she never really knows you know the, the, the doctors they give you medication for the symptoms it's a lifelong condition blah 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 she found her mother dead when she was a child and it's only now she's making the link mm-hmm. that maybe that that's the root cause of it all, do you know what I mean? So that's amazing, do you know what I mean? People are getting an awareness, and, um, you know, it's educational, and it's great. It sounded like the government, he once sounded like he actually ended up having a bit of crack with him. Yeah, he, he was, was a gent. Yeah. He was a gent, yeah, no, he was a gent. He was so humble and so kind to us as well, do you know, there was no errors and graces about him. Do you know another thing, another point to really make, you know, um, me and James, we don't, we don't try to section out any other community or anything like that we talk about our own community and what's not hap- what's not happening in the community what it's not getting and, and what issues are going on there we never it's never a dig at any other community you know any community that's that's a little bit more well off than where we live it's never anything like that you know because there's people out there with the same issues you know they have the same problems same addictions same financial problems it's the same thing, you know, but it's just different in certain areas. It's, a, it's it's more evident, you know. So I think it's very important for anyone that is listening as well, like that. 
it's it's not a dig at any community or anybody in general. It's just we need to bring up certain issues and talk about them because if we don't, they won't be talked about. They'll be swept under the carpet, you know, and things need to change. You know what I mean? Because if things don't change in certain communities, right, there's kids being born now and you can see the future they're going to have. Because all you have to do is look at their parent. Mm. It's like that saying goes, monkey see, monkey do. But does, you know? people, does people know that we would have been in addiction with and in prison with, and now they are young fellas now, 15, 16, 17, and it's the cycle repeating, do you know what I mean? They are on the path now as well, do you know? And it's just sad to see, do you know? It's, now, mm-hmm. the, the first few episodes you did means you're talking kind of about your own stories. Mm-hmm. It's definitely worthwhile going back. Actually, a really nice way to start the podcast off mm-hmm. to get yeah. people to get them away a wee bit. But exactly. Would you be able to maybe give a bit of a, just a brief kind of summary about the kind of the experiences that brought us up as mm-hmm. far as starting off the podcast? Yeah, do you want to go first then? Um, like, I grew up in a family and there was myself, I had two younger siblings and my mother. You know, there was no father in the family home. Um, I grew up watching my mother suffer really badly with her mental health. So I'd come home from school most days and she'd be rocking on the chair. The house would be freezing, there'd be no food in the cupboard. It was, it, it, we were as poor now as they come, you know. And it, this was the 80s. And even think, looking back, I, I'm looking at the child that had to come home to that every day, you know. Um, and there was the, the mental health problems inside the family home were ridiculous. Like my mother would frequently try to commit suicide through um, overdoses. She'd throw herself in the river and different things like that. You know, so I grew up, I, I had to grow up at a really young age. You know, At a really young age, I also wanted to die and I didn't even know what that meant. You know, um, but that's how I felt. That's when I completely shut off because of the abuse, the physical abuse in the home. You know, and the mental stuff, you know. And I really cut off at a really young age. But I also had two younger siblings that I had to mind as well, you know. I would have been minding my siblings at the age of seven and eight, you know what I mean? And, and making sure they were okay. And it was like that. Like I was the father of the family household. And that fucked up my head, you know, completely. It, you know, because... I was a child, I didn't understand things, you know, and, and I went through my own life then a really, really, really negative mind. I believe people were bad, never trust no one, you know, and I had no confidence, no self-esteem, none of these, you know, none of them. Um, and it went, went on for that until I was about maybe 11, 12, that's when substances and drugs and alcohol started coming into my life and that's when I found my escapage. You know, that's when I found that one thing that gave me the escapage from the stuff that was going on in my head. I struggled with my sexuality as a young child because of stuff that would have happened when I was a kid and I didn't understand it. You know, these are things... No, I've never spoke about that before mm. on any podcast, not even my own, but I would have struggled with my sexuality as a teenager and, and not understanding why I felt like that, not not knowing whether it was a woman or a man I wanted, you know. And that was because of not being taught about anything like that. Growing up in a family home where I actually thought I was the father figure of the house because 
that was my role. I was not just looking after my two brothers, I was looking after my mother as well because of her own stuff. And I went on for years and years and then drugs and drink came into my life and and it all changed. Now I got the self-esteem that I never had, the confidence I never had. You know, the next ecstasy came on and I started to love things. I started to feel in love. I didn't even know what it was. You know, we know that feeling well. All these different <laughs> things, you know. Um, but I went into treatment at the age of 15. My mother had a partner at this time and he committed suicide. She went into a mental institution then for uh, probably 12 months. I was sent on to a treatment centre in Cork first for young young people. Um, and then I was sent to France to another treatment centre because that one closed. And, and I stayed there for a number of years and I came back when I was 18. And that's when my life kind of went out of control and drugs, crime, you know, all sorts of shit, you know. And, and at the age of 31, then I got sober and clean. I had a, I had a partner with two kids at this stage, you know, and I went to prison where I learned to read and write. You know, I done the equivalent of a junior cert, you know, and I worked my way up to feet tax four in the prison. And then when I came out of prison, I'll go back a little bit. In prison, I'd done an awful lot of work myself. You know, I went to prison at the age of 32. Um, I was a month clean and sober when I went into prison. Uh, I got sober and cleared in 2011, December, the 26th of December. Um, I got clean, sober, gamble-free, amongst other things, the crime and all these different things there. Yeah, finished at that time, you know. Um, it was like I had a light switch go off in my head. I had my first glimpse of awareness, you know, inside and arrested again, prison. Um, and it was just like, what the fuck? What are you doing? Like, you know, this this has to stop somewhere. And um, that was it for me. I went to the doctor after I got out of the cell that night. The next morning, he put me on meds put me on anti um, antidepressants and I was on them until I went into prison then that was in January with the treatment in February for a month went into prison in, in March and I interacted immediately with the services in there the psychologist the drug counsellor got to school started to educate myself and went through my whole prison sentence like that I stayed in the Midlands for two years. I went on to an open prison then for another nearly year. And then I went home. I was sober, clean. I would have used meditation in the prison as well as as my breather, my bit of fresh air. It really slowed me down. You know, I could never sit in the seat without rocking, shaking. I was completely all over the place. The meditation calmed me right down. The hard work started when I went home then. You know, I got out of prison, I had two kids and a wife. You know, I had no responsibilities before that because I was in the height of addiction. Never took responsibility for anything. You know, I wasn't drug dealer or anything like anymore. So I had to work to provide for my family financially. And when I got out of prison, I went straight into the education system again. I done a FETAC 5 and a 6, which is the equivalent of the leaving sort. And I went from there then, I went on to third level education. You know, and 
but while we were in prison, myself and two brothers, in 2012, the three of us were in prison, myself and Tommy, we were born in Port Leash in the Midlands, and John Paul, my younger brother, he would have been Cork prison. And my mother was after committing suicide in the family home. She hung herself. And, and at that time, I wasn't speaking to my mother because I was going through an awful lot of, of, of the trauma that I suffered as a young child with my, my psychologist. And I felt like it wasn't a good time for me to speak to my mother because I was going through a lot of emotional stuff, you know, and I didn't understand it. I didn't understand why my mother behaved in the way she did as a, when I was a child. So I had a lot of anger towards her. But when she committed suicide, then I kind of, I was destroyed in guilt because I wasn't speaking to her or anything. Like she committed suicide the day after her birthday. It was the third of December, 2012, you know. And um, I was in a single cell in the, in the landing and Tommy, my brother, he was in a two-man. And I just remember a priest knocking at the door with the chief and class officer and I knew, I just knew, like, she was dead from the night before. And it was the first time she tried that form of suicide, which was the hanging, you know, and, and it was the same way her partner, the person that she really dearly loved, he, he was after dying when I was 15, he would have died 15 years previous. But she, she was always very sick, you know, with her mental health, but... When he died, it was just took us to that in other level, you know. And um, but anyway, I just thought it was important to mention that, you know. But we got through it. I got through it in prison, you know. And I had some fantastic people in there that were helping me. And when I got out, I, I went back into the education. But it was very hard for me to integrate back into a society that and an environment that were so different to the one I went in, you know. And I didn't, there was times I thought, I thought my relationship was never going to work out with my partner, who we had two kids together, you know, I struggled, and I went back to the doctor, believe it or not, after prison, you know, because I couldn't handle it, my mental health was gone, and I wanted to die, you know, there was times I really wanted to die, like, because I couldn't handle it, the pain, and in 2016, 17, I came across a guy by the name of Dr. Joe Dispenza and I started looking into his work. Now I was in survival mode and if anybody that's listening doesn't understand what survival mode is, it's a place of being where you're caught up in the really negative kind of energies, Com like complete depression. I had no future because I was thinking of a future with, with, with my past who'd give me a chance, who'd give me a job, all these different things, you know. So when I found his work, I started learning how the body and the mind are connected and how thoughts and emotions and feelings are connected. And I started becoming aware of all this stuff and I started meditating a lot. So I started getting up at half past four in the morning and doing online lectures from him. I'd do a lecture for an hour, an hour and a half, meditate for an hour, and I started visualizing my future self healthy very well in myself physically and mentally and walking around with a constant smile on my face happy within six months i was that person that i was visualizing you know my whole life changed you know and um 
that's when things started to really change for me mentally. You know, I was able to catch these thoughts instead of when these thoughts come up, right? Say if I had a shameful thought or a guilty thought of my past, right? Or a fearful thought of my future. I'd feel fear. And for the feeling of fear to justify itself, my mind is going to start thinking of other fearful thoughts to hold on to this feeling, the chemicals of these feelings, you know, and it works for all of these different areas that I said, the shame, the fear, the guilt, you know, it works, same thing works for all. And when I started understanding that and catching these things instead of the spiral downhill, which was happening all my life, that's when my life changed, you know. And I was grasping these things and I was feeling the shame, feeling the fear, feeling the guilt, you know. And I was watching the thought behind it and they were just disappearing slowly, you know. And, and that's when everything started to change for me, you know. And I was, I was in college doing a degree in construction management at the time, you know, which was for four years. In my second year of college, I found out that I, I had, had, had an educational psychologist done an assessment me and taught me I was dyslexic, you know, at the age of 36, you know, which confirmed a lot for me because I always knew that I was a little bit different to other people in terms of my education views and stuff like that, you know, my wording, my reading, reading from the bottom up never able to understand certain words no matter how many times I looked at them in the dictionary and stuff you know so never able to grasp certain things you know now that would have been a, a, my kind of mental block as well whenever I came across any form of difficulty in my life I had this mental block mechanism that I would have developed as a young child to protect me from any form of of stress or or danger and I carried this in. So when I was doing the maths question that was difficult, I'd just go completely blank. You know, completely blank, completely numb emotionally and mentally, you know. So all these different things, like these are massive things for people to actually understand about themselves. And that's, that's and I'm still trying to figure out shit about myself, you know. It, it, we're constantly, but... I have great understanding today about my mother's, my mother's situation, why she was the way she was, you know, because I carry, my mother carried shame and I grew up in the same home as her and her shame was passed on to me, you know. I don't, I hope people understand that, but I understand it today because there was no other way for it to be passed on to me because, you know, it, it's just crazy. And my mother had a lot of different things happen to her in her own life that she, she couldn't get over. And there was a lot of shame there. And it's not that I look back now in hindsight and I understand it, you know. I can have real compassion for my mother, you know, and why she took her own life because of the pain. Because I went through the same pain that she has, has had. I, I feel how she felt. And there was times that I actually wanted to drive my van or a car or whatever into a river or drive it into a truck. You know, but these were just thoughts again because my body wasn't able to deal with the stuff that was going on internally for me. You know, but now I can delve deep within and feel this shit. And I have tough days still, you know, but I'm like, 
like a fine wine. I'm maturing <laughs> as the years go by, you know. Yeah. And there's a couple of next pieces in the podcast with Gabor when you, yeah. you and him kind of went on a little bit of a deep dive there and yeah. kind of deconstructed some things in a really clear way that yeah. kind of similar to the way that you were kind of explaining it now. Yeah, you know, if, if Annie was ever going to understand me and James, it was him. Mm. Anybody across the board. And, and we felt a little bit anxious, not anxious, a bit nervous because, like, this guy. Fucking starstruck. <laughs> this guy. Somebody is, that you respect and you look up to, and you know mm. he's got millions of views and he's one of the leading people in the world on the topics we're talking about. So it was a real privilege, you know what I mean? You want to, you know, it's going to be, you know, people are going to be looking and. Um, like people hear the two narrows or two might have judgments. I know, you know, this might be the one that they tune into. So we have to do ourselves. But I think we did, we did well on it. These were still sounded exactly the same as you sound on the other podcast. Exactly. Uh, the time we did one together, and we we're just sitting chatting like it's it yeah. great. Could have been the temptation to be have a really academic yeah. conversation with him because he's so well known and exactly. And it's like just that. just be yourself. Do you know what I mean? That's all you do. Be once you be yourself, you can never get cut out. And we never tried to pretend or anything or, or listen to Timmy there. But how to follow Timmy? Mm. The level of emotion and intelligence. I I never see anybody with it. You know, with the work Timmy's done on himself to he can you know analyze his past behaviors and experiences, um, the sense of awareness. Do you know what I mean? Um, I'd have had similar experiences to Timmy, but very different in many ways as well. We're from the same estate. Mm-hmm. My mother and his mother would be very close friends. I would have gone up over in Timmy's house with his younger brother, John Paul, and would have been very close friends. And then uh, Tommy as well. Tommy was the mad one of the tree. <laughs> no, he was the mad one out of the mad tree. <laughs> but um, it was a great little estate, you know what I mean? It was a great little sense of community, like what we spoke about earlier on. I suppose in my home, I had my mother and my father, older brother, two younger sisters. Um, my dad is a dub. Uh, we moved. I was born in Dublin, and we moved. My mum. We lived in Clondalk, and when Weefield was just being built, the prison, and my mum wanted to move back to Cork, you know, because Dublin was getting rough at the time. So we moved to Knocknaheen in the mid eighties, which was like, you know, what it, you know what it reminds me of. Do you know that movie from up by you, um, you, me, and Marley? <laughs> That's what it's like. You know, the gyrating, open the scone, fucking four or the bubble cadets. You know, this was like. It's the same sort of an era, you know, that joyriding era, late 80s, early 90s. But that's the people we looked up to, you know. There used to be displays of joyriding on the back road in Akinheny, people doing donuts. But the joyriders were the people that had status in the community, you know. Um, the people that had status and money in the community was the people that were doing drugs, involved in crime. And they're the people that we looked up to, and I looked up to, and even in my own family we had it, you know what I mean? So it's only natural that... You look up to their role models, you know. Um, did well in primary school, was always kind of bright around, you know, the English, geography, history type subjects. Then when I was around 12, went into secondary school, hated the secondary school. My dad was after getting a good few years in prison around this time. Actually, he was writing to Timmy. Timmy was in a treatment centre in France and he yeah. used to be writing to me. Dad was in prison, you know. But I found that very hard to accept. You know, I was about 12. And when he was there, I, I couldn't I couldn't get my head around and all that. He was only in the Glen, in the prison, you know, it's only a couple of kilometres away, but so far as well, you know. And 
I, I acted out in school. I hated the schools. You know, it was an all boys Christian Brothers secondary school. You know, it was there was no soccer. It was a soccer man. You know, it was all GA. The hearty cup was the big thing. In the, in the man, in the man, yeah. You know, and I, I didn't. I, I like hurling as a spectacle, as a sport, but I, could, I was never no good at it. I wasn't as tough. I wasn't tough enough. I was a soccer player. You know what I mean? That's all I. But um, and I didn't make the transition into that school. Well, the school was a nightmare. I suppose. Towards the end of school, I kind of just my self esteem, my confidence, you know. Um, when I was developing as a teenager, I just became very insecure. You know, I was very thin, um, difficult relationships at home with my mum and my sisters because the conflict I had in school that was brought home, you know, it just caused a lot of trouble, you know. Um, we were labelled, you know, you would talk about all your north side teams playing sports against other areas, call labels like. You know, junkie and scumbag and stuff like that. It was the same with the teachers in the school, you know. Um, and it was just a ball, it was all negativity, you know. And when I started experimenting, like Timmy said, with these, it was like that sense of love and belonging, you know, that an E can give you, like nothing else, you know. And I felt like when I started taking ease, it was like, this is what I'm supposed to be doing, do you know what I mean? Standing around the Burnham Wheelie bit with the boys out of our heads and ease, this is where I'm most comfortable, you know. Um, it's just that sense of camaraderie where nothing else matters but this moment um, and took these for a few years alcohol um, around the 18 and I had a suicide attempt um, which obviously wasn't successful but around that time as well my mental health was gone like even before the drugs when I started taking drugs I didn't get a long time out of the drugs where it was party it was like my head was gone very quickly you know we started getting prescriptions off quack doctors, you know, uh, Valium, Rohypnol, Xanax, uh, codeine tablets, these type of scripts, you know. And that was my job, you know, 24 hours when I travel with and bread of Cork City and County, getting scripts off quack doctors. For every 10 doctors you try, you might get one script. But if you had five scripts in Cork, um, you could have four or five hundred euro worth of tablets on each script. But were they real doctors, eh? Oh, they're real doctors, yeah. And what it is when... Let's say, this was the story, right? And there's a gas story. There's a gas story here, actually. I went into the doctor one time, right? I was only um, 17. And the reason I know I was underage because I had to go in with a, a mock day at a birth. I'd say I was born in 84. When I was born in 85, because you have to be 18 to get Rohypnol and Xanax and things like that. And my friend's brother used to say to me, this was the story. Go down and tell him that you're only out of prison and you're on this in prison and you've no GP and you're just trying to get started, blah, blah, blah. So he was like, no way, this is going to work. And I went down and it worked, right? So I tried that story with everyone, but there's a doctor in town, right? And you'd know the same fella because of the GA. This doctor, right, was... Um, so I went into this doctor, I didn't know who he was, right? He's in the Mardike here in Cork City. I think he's retired now, but I won't say his name. But then anyway, gave the usual story. And he turned around and he says, you're in prison, you're on Rohypnol and Xanax. I says, yeah, 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 because this has worked previously. Like, He says, I'm not prison, were you? In? I says, Cork prison. He says, I am the doctor for Cork prison. He was Dr. Carl Murphy. He was the, the doctor for Cork Hurlers for years. Yeah. And I, I, I <laughs> ran out of the office. <laughs> car, car for abuse, but in general, you would get ran out of the office. But sometimes the doctor will open the notepad and start writing once he sees the 50 euros on the table. That's all you want. 50 euros for the doctor, 30 euros to cash the script in the chemist, and you could have four or 500 euros worth of tablets. 
and the medication we used to medicate ourselves mm. used to be my dad used to say to me you're the only man in Cork to wake up in the morning and take 10 sleeping tablets oh yeah because <laughs> just come and Sharon Lambert um, an academic we had on the podcast there was a psychologist but she did a piece of research around benzodiazepine use in in Cork City amongst young people you know and my, I think it's the title or else one of the quotes in it was you just don't feel and that's completely it why was I taking, you know, sleeping tablets the minute I woke up and tranquilizers throughout the day? Because I just didn't feel, I didn't feel any hurt or pain or insecurity or fear or anxiety when I was medicated. And I used to go around like a zombie. And then when we were drinking alcohol on top of that, you blank out and you do mad shit, you know, joyriding, burglaries, fucking fighting, antisocial behavior, ending up in guard stations and that. No memory of how you ended up there, you know, waking up with a fear of yeah, what happened the night before, what damage did I do, you know, these sort of things. And started going into prison then when I was 18, 19, 20 for very erratic behaviour like that, you know, being in stolen cars, robs, um, robbing, thefts, possession, drugs, anti a lot of antisocial behaviour, public order offences. Um, Around 2006, then heroin started coming into Cork. And unlike, I don't know what it was like in, in Belfast, but in Manchester, Liverpool, Dublin, late 70s, early 80s, there was, you know, um, big heroin epidemic, you know, in those cities especially. And it, it, it kind of new supply routes coming from Pakistan with immigration coming into the UK, it was, um, mass, more production of opium in those regions as well, you know, um, kind of, and then a recession in the 80s so you have like these new uh, migration routes from Pakistan more production of opium in the Middle East um, and a recession in England and Ireland so you have core conditions there for a uh, heroin epidemic and anyway you see heroin epidemics there's nearly always a correlation with poverty it wasn't uh, distributed evenly amongst the populations of England and Ireland it wasn't it was disproportionately young males in working class areas in Manchester, Liverpool and Dublin. But we didn't get it in Cork. And most of Ireland didn't get it like Dublin got it. Um, one of the reasons why we did get it eventually around 2005-2006, we used to have a prison here in Cork called Spike Island off the coast of Cove, right? Like a little uh, Alcatraz. It was a British military base turned into a prison for young fellas. From the north side, generally, housed the joyriders on Spike from the ages of 16 to 24, you know. That closed in 2004, so all the influence that was there started going to St. Patrick Institution, which is a, a Mountjoy, or else Mountjoy, Weefield. Um, and I think that they may have picked up the habit, definitely the connections in Dublin, and brought them back to Cork. And around 2006, 2007, what else did we have here? A big recession again, you know? So you have the connections um, made, and now we have a recession and for those of the people that weren't have that didn't have the money to emigrate to Australia and Canada, like a lot of people of our vintage would have, for those of us that was left behind, what had you? Hopelessness, joblessness, and a huge uh, availability of heroin. And that was kind of, we got caught up in the heroin then, you know, there was more antisocial behaviour, drinking, love parties with ecstasy. Mm. It was very um, isolating. Um, all the friends started breaking up because you start ripping each other off. It's very sneaky drug you do things for that drug that you know really bring you a lot of shame and guilt you know and um there's it's a very stigmatized drug as well you know um intravenous drug use you know using needles and all that what i was doing i knew 
I know the stigma attached to it and I felt every bit of it. The dirt, do you know, people, do you know, um, even when you're going into the chemist to get the needles, do you know, you're just so ashamed and you're trying to hide them in your pocket before you get out the door and your physical appearance is very skinny or very yellow, gaunt, and you know how you appear. It's a stereotypical crackhead as what people might think. That's how I looked, do you know, and... Um, I had no self-worth and all I wanted to do was either get completely stoned out of my head or die and sometimes I crossed over where I got so, I took so much drugs that I overdosed, blah, blah, and that went down and then the prison sentences were all under for under 12 months. Um, possession of drugs, drugs for sale and supply, theft, it was all addiction related. It was never a master criminal making money or anything like that. It was never like that, you know. It was just fucking an idiot that was hooked on drugs. And prison was like an occupational hazard. Eventually, I got a break, to be honest with you. I, I, I had an overdose. I, two guards actually found me. And they were like, James, we know you a long time. You're going to be found dead, do you know? Um, you need to look after yourself because this is an old You've never been so bad. And I remember kind of thinking like, fucking hell, do you know? Our interaction with guards wasn't like that. wasn't a human-to-human interaction. It was like... Where you going? Where were you last night? You know, let me sort you. That type of that's what you're expecting. But when they speak to you, human to human, it's like fucking. Hell, you take note of that. Is that just in the city somewhere? Yeah, Blarney Street. You know where um, Sunday as well. Do you know the North Mall? And you walk up Sunday as well. Well, the steps goes up the side of the River Lane pub. There, it was actually there, um, down the side of the River Lane pub, down the side of the High House pub. Actually, between Blarney Street and Sunday as well. Nobody really walks down there two or three in the morning. I was pissed drunk after coming from my friend's house. I got two bags and I injected the two bags into one go and I would but somebody was walking past, raised the alarm, got that in the lock, so I went the doors for opiates, got up and walked home. And with the girls that were there, they pulled me a couple of days later and they were like, you know, can you remember the other night? I was like, yeah, an overdose, you know. It wasn't my first, like... And they were saying, you're very lucky somebody walked past because two o'clock in the morning, not many people walk past that lane. Do you think you would have been dead? I'd have been dead, 100% I'd have been dead. But I know if I didn't act soon, I was going to be found dead because I had a lot of very close calls where I've ended up in hospital or people have found me at the right time. You know, very, very lucky, you know, being in situations where others have died and they've survived that type of thing, you know. Mm-hmm. I have friends that have taken less and died, you know. So... Eventually, after that interaction with the guards, I made a phone call to a treatment centre and I had to one methadone and come off heroin to stabilise. took me six months, got into treatment, eight weeks, detoxer from methadone and benzos, 16 weeks in the therapeutic residential side of it, doing, you know, trying to unlearn all these street behaviours and the street mentality I had, uh, trying to learn a new way of thinking, a new perspective on life and all these um, self-limiting core beliefs I had about who I was and what I could ever be, what a man was, what a masculine thing is to do, you know. I was very fucking warped, do you know what I mean? The idea that if you worked, you were a fool, and that if you were going to prison, you were cool, and that if your money came from crime, it was great. These are the beliefs I had, that I could never go to college or I could never have a stable relationship or drive a car. These are very limiting beliefs, and up there they challenged all that. And I remember, I come out of there, I was homeless, and I come out of there, Cox Simon put me up in a house, but I came out of there with a new mentality. It was like, do you know what? I'm not fucking describing to any of that shit that I've, you know, grown up with. I can't go, I can't have a nice job, but I can't have a nice car. I want all these things. And I felt I had 
a load of ability. I felt I had a load of um, motivation and a load of ambition, you know, and I just was looking for a bit of direction. It's kind of a stereotype for people in early recovery to want to be gym instructors, you know, because you're fit and healthy for the first time in your life, you know, and you want to throw a few shapes, make a few good of it. <laughs> and a lot of the lads were doing that. So I said, fuck it, I went to Colossia Stefan Nefa, didn't get the course, right? There was a level five course up in Knocknaheeny College as well. Didn't get that course. I know I was highly insulted when I see the fools that got the course. Like, <laughs> and I was like, what am I going to do with my life? You know? Then I started dating my wife, Gillian, at the time. And uh, she really kind of showed me that um, university was there for me if I wanted it. Because she was in recovery and she'd been through university. She was from the same area as me. And all of a sudden, I was like... UCC for us like for me seven Timmy if we were walking through UCC when we were young there's a hive of security jacket on behind you making sure like that campus you didn't belong there there's no like any nearly from here where we're based in your gym this side of the city up and past UCC you'll see UCC iconography everywhere UCC owns this building there's an emblem here there are badges here you never see anything related to UCC where we're from so it was always like it's for the other side of the city even though you could walk there from our house through mm. Sunday as well in 10 minutes it might have been a million miles away um, but when I met Gillian all of a sudden like I felt I had ability and I was just looking all of a sudden she gave me a bit of advice and I said you know what you're fucking right and I ended up doing a few courses you know level fives and trees and stuff went into UCC and I did a bachelor's degree in community work. I remember one of my first days in UCC, they were doing a fucking, um, the students' union election for the president of the students' union and they were out doing their campaign. You know the young fellas, mm-hmm. no kind of posh young fellas, you know? And it was like walking through an American teen movie. It was a thought. These are the young fellas, no way were looking at and I would have thinking, look at these fucking idiots, you know? Mm-hmm. Mommy Robbins, you know, this type of, you know? And, but it's a whole new culture. It was like, oh, will you vote for me? Uh, rolling, rolling was the slogan, you know? Rolling, rolling, you know, I'm going to bring in the best facilities for <laughs> students and all. And I was like, this is fucking mad. It was a whole new culture, you know? And um, But I loved I loved UCC and I loved learning, you know, psychology, learning social theory. I started getting a heightened awareness around who I was, my behaviours, my family dynamic, my community, my city, my country, how we're positioned in a geopolitical context. I, I, you know, I had a very curious, and I still very curious for learning about you know, new theories and learning philosophy. And I just loved it. And I started getting good grades. And you know, I, I, got, I got an award at the end of my bachelor's, you know, excellent scholar. I got to pick a master's for free, which was worth six grand for me. And we did a little awards ceremony and all that was very cool. Um, I did a master's in criminology, again, got very good grades. You know, I got published in an international academic journal, got another scholarship, a fully funded PhD, um, which I'm doing at the moment. Um, and I'm still I'm still learning, I'm still in college, seven years down the line, I have another six years of it ahead of me, you know, for my PhD, because it's part-time, but I can do it as part of my work, which is, I work in addiction services here in Cork. We do one-to-one work and group work with people with drug and alcohol issues. Um, I only started in the last six weeks, but I'm the team leader for the South Side. So this would be actually, if you know anybody, um, struggling with drug and alcohol. It doesn't have to be addiction, because not all drug and alcohol use is addiction. There might be some harm reduction or whatever. But if you know of anybody, send them on to me and we'll see what we can do from you know, so, um And we started the podcast mm-hmm. and, you know... Uh, 
No, we're starting at the moment. No, we're starting. We've started a company. Yeah. Basically, we're going to start doing some public speaking and stuff like that for companies and basically uh, motivational talks and in different areas. So that's something that's going to be coming in the next few months. Yeah, because I think for, for like Timmy's working full time, he's starting up a business. I'm working full time and I'm doing the PhD. You know yourself, and that the podcast doesn't fucking grow itself. It takes time and effort, and we give it a lot of time and effort, like you do. But I think for us to make a sustainable long term, we need to be, we need to monetize it some way. You know, mm. like we need an office space, like what you have here. You know, we need to try and grow the Patreon. We need to try and get paid for some of the talks that we do for free. Um, and it's not, it's not out of greed or anything like that. It's just like. There has, to, there has to come a point we have to be paid for time is. to make it sustainable I'm start, I've started my own company um, and there's some weeks that I might only get two to two and a half days of work in the week to provide for my family you know because I'm doing a, I love helping out let's get that clear number one right but if it's if it's eating into my work time where I, I have to provide for my family you know, um, it's a problem. Mm. So we've we've came up with the idea of, of maybe starting up some, we give talks, you know, on leadership and resilience and, you know, and, and work ethic and all these different areas, you know, and in terms of related to our own stories and who we are as people, you know, and we'll see how that goes. How do you feel about having your personal stories out kind of in the public domain? I'm used to it now. I remember after the Tommy Turner show, it was it was one of the one of the things that you bargain for when you do that. When like when I when I was asked to do the Tommy Turner show in two thousand eighteen, I declined it because like to me it was private. I had no Facebook or anything like that, and I just wanted to get out my life. You know, they asked me two thousand nineteen. I did a kind of a pros and cons to it. You know, one of the the big cons really was. You're going to be, are you going to be forever known as James Ennard, ex heroin addict? You know what I mean? And there's a funny story. The first version of lockdown last year, you know, um, my Auntie Claire, uh, she, she calls bingo in the local pub, right? But the pub was closed, so she was calling bingo from her garden last summer, and everybody was in their own gardens drinking beer, marking their cars, or you no know, shouting the, the numbers over the loudspeaker. <laughs> so it was picked up in the media, right? And one of the medias, I, I don't know, I can't remember, I think it was Cock Bio or somebody like that. But uh, I shared the video, I said, look, me Auntie Claire calling bingo, there was music, looked like Ray Crack, blah, blah, blah. Your man contacted me and says, look, i seen your tweet there, you know, your aunt, do you mind if I share it on an article? I says, yeah, go on. You know what the headline was? Ex-heroin addict James Ennard's aunt calls bingo on Holly Hill. Oh, for fuck's sake. And I was like, are you, are you forever going to be known as James Ennard, the ex-heroin addict, you know what I mean? And that is probably the worst thing about it, you know, it's like, but counteract that with all the, all the amount of people that were able to help the people that were able to link in with supports because we've you know um, exposed ourselves people who are able to relate their stories as well exactly see that's the key the key here is is for people to have some form of uh, association with the guests and with me and James because I remember when I was in early recovery I knew nothing about AA I knew nothing about recovery or treatment or anything like this and some people might just come across the podcast out of nowhere turn on an episode and then all of a sudden it's a light switch in the head you know I actually have a fucking problem you know 
And then they might roll on and watch another podcast and they might watch a podcast then that just completely opens up a door inside their head and they start realising that they need to change their own lives. That's what the podcast is all about. It's about opening up different options for people in their lives and showing them that it doesn't have to be the way it is. How do you feel about that? Because there, there isn't an episode of your podcast that goes by without someone sharing it on social media and being like, the boys are doing great work or the boys are saving lives or fucking everyone has to be listening to this. So how do you feel about that now? It's very pro- something to be very proud of. You know, I'm very proud of it. You know, Christy Moore is our biggest fan. You know, I think, you know, Christy Moore is such a legend, you know what I mean? And the fact the fact that Christy Moore would, you know, religiously watch our podcast every week, give us feedback on it, you know, subscribe to our Patreon and everything, it's just one example of the reach that it has, you know what I mean? Um, I'm still amazed that Christy, like one of, one of the lecturers over in criminology in UCC, she's Austrian, you know, and she was like, what's Christy Moore? I said, Christy Morris does what Mozart is to Vienna. <laughs> and that's the best description I can give him. He's just a living legend. Um, we've been invited to the artist by Michael D. Higgins. You know, we've been invited to do various TV shows and radios and everything. And you know what? One of the most, the biggest ones for us at the moment is like, lately we've been asked to do a presentation for a, a new, they're not new, they've just changed their name. They were young Nakahini. Yeah. Now they're called Let's Grow Together. Like the two of us have been asked to present that their new opening. We're day. launching it. You know, the Taoiseach is speaking at it and everything. So for, we have to, for, for us to be looked, <laughs> for us to be looked in that way compared to the way we were looked at when we were ten years ago when we were both destroyed from drugs and alcohol um, and, and involved in different various forms of crime. That just shows people that change does happen and people will have a different opinion on you now when you change the behaviours as well. Not just stop the addictions or whatever else, it's the behaviours have to change, you know. Because I live a life today where I don't get away with nothing in terms of if I do something wrong or say something that's not right, I'm caught up in my head over it until I make the apology or until I, I correct the behaviour and whatever it may be, you know. And that's that's something that I value more than anything else, because which is my peace of mind. Because if I do any of these things, my peace of mind is gone, you know. It's the behaviours that will bring Timmy and James back to prison faster than the drug or the alcohol these days. Mm. So we have to watch our behaviours. You know, the behaviours are the things that we developed in the years of addiction, you know. They are still there when you put on a drinking drug. You need to become aware of them and stop them. They're like habits or patterns that you have in your life. But it's mad because not so long ago we would have been, you know, who we just spoke about, you know, in prison and addiction, stuff like that. And these days we get asked to not to go on people's podcasts and to, you know... Mm. Uh, host um, organisation stepping up with the Taoiseach and being invited up to Aarhus and Uchtaran by the President and Christy Moore sent emails it's a weird space to be in you know it is a weird space to be in and sometimes you can get caught up in the rat race of life but when you re- really take a step back and look at it you know everything that we've achieved and all the amount of people that we can help um, and the amount of recognition that we're starting to get now you know it's actually very cool you know Do you think that the system 
Theodis in your embrace? 100%, yeah. I suppose if you look at the system that was available, I remember when, when I was young, right? I remember speaking to somebody, I won't mention who it was, um, and they see the shit that was going on inside my family home as a young child, you know, and they would have made a phone call to get somebody up, social worker, to get involved. Nobody turned up. Nobody. You know? It has changed, but and it has changed now because there's so much of the old stuff in the limelight and people can't get away with it anymore. You know, and you have these different organisations now that are there to make sure people are protected in different ways, you know. Um, I don't know, has it changed enough? But maybe enough to ensure that some really, really terrible stuff doesn't happen anymore, you know. You know, when I was studying criminology, I was that to read about um, uh, literature around children of prison parents, you know. And... Uh, I just there was one article that was around people children's experience of education if they have a parent in prison, you know. Now my experience as I said earlier on, I had very behavioural issues. I couldn't sit still, I couldn't concentrate, even though I was obviously capable and bright, but for whatever reason I couldn't sit still, I had issues, blah blah blah. But never anybody come down to me and says, What's wrong with James? You know, something something's up here. Well, what did I get? I got suspended, I got told I was a tug. I was stupid, sent home letters, all that. I was reading this article and it was like, when you when something like, when the parent is taken out of home, put into prison, the child doesn't understand, do you know what I mean? The child then will act out in way, and behavioural issues, being, um, finding how to retain information, finding how to sit still, um, anger and all these things, very common amongst children that have parents in prison, you know? So... But when you're a child, when I was a child, it was made to feel like I was bad and it was all me. Do you know what I mean? Um, when actually my experience is very common. Do you know, and I wasn't bad and I grew up as an adult. Now I know, no, I'm not a bad person. I was just going through a tough time that time and I'm a good person. And now I'm not stupid. I'm actually very intelligent. But you just weren't able to teach me because you didn't have the skills or you didn't have the awareness or you, maybe you just didn't care because schools reward those who are well behaved and perform well in academia and if you don't fit into that little rigid system the school doesn't want to know you so I definitely believe the schools failed me it was a re-traumatising experience as well already stuff tough stuff going on at home the school should be a sanctuary for children you know not a re-traumatising experience other than that then like when child like when a parent goes into prison Obviously, the parents have to commit a crime. In, in certain context, the parents should probably do prison. That's no problem. We don't think that people shouldn't have to face up their responsibilities. They should. There has to be an awareness that there's children left in the house. And unless you put supports around that family, you're breeding a whole load of criminals in the house. Because all I seen was uniforms you know, coming into the house. Blue uniform in the, in the area arresting the boys. Timmy and that. Then I'm going up to prison, the blue uniform, treating me mum like shit in the reception. Do you know, um, you just grow up with a fucking hatred for anything the uniform represents. So I think that supports around, and I, I'd like to think it's a little bit different today. I know there's certain organisations 
St. Nicholas Trust is one um, in Cork where the support prison families of imprisoned parents um, the Dylan's Cross Project um, they support partners of people in prison you know, so there is supports there you would hope then in some schools that teachers will be more trauma informed and be able to identify maybe the child that is going through some difficulties but I know that's very much dependent on the ethos of the principal um, and it's very much down to the principal schools are very autonomous you know so I know a principal, um, they have Cashman, he won't mind me saying his name, like, but um, I'd say his school would be the model like, I, I'd like to see more run by, you know. So yeah, definitely systemic failures, notwithstanding parenting is tough for the people in the 80s and the 90s, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And nobody sets out, like Timmy's mum didn't set out, you know, the best of wishes when she gave birth to him. She didn't set out for herself to have mental health issues, for him to have addiction, for her to take a life. We don't want them. My dad didn't set out for him to go to prison, you know, for me to follow. My mother didn't set out for have a relationship breakdown. And don't stuff happens, you know what I mean? And mm. you never look back to blame. It's just to understand. And as Gabor said on the podcast, we just look back to understand and we'll all heal together. And yeah. I have a great relationship with my family today. Very solid relationship, you know, and we all love each other we're all healing together and that's the way it should be you know yeah. um, something else you used to touch on with when you were chatting to Gabor was about decriminalisation of drugs mm-hmm. in Ireland and that seemed to be another one of those things where it's criminalising the symptom mm-hmm. rather than dealing with the yeah it's another problem. it's another classist policy for example in Ireland official policy is decriminalisation for the first two offences for drug possession now, who does that suit? And that? The student that gets caught around the corner here on Rag Week or Freshers Week with ease or a bag of coke or a bit of weed, they might get, get, get caught once and they'll avoid the conviction. If they're very unlucky, they'll get caught twice, they'll still avoid conviction, do you know? But what about somebody that's down that side of the city in the Simon? He gets caught with heroin in the morning, right? The girl takes his heroin, right? He gets caught with heroin again in the afternoon because he needs the heroin. Mm-hmm. The, do you think after the second time he's going to turn around and say, you know what, no, I'm going to start, I'm never again using drugs because I'm, I'm afraid I'm going to get a conviction. No, he's not. The whole point of addiction is continue to use the substance in spite of the adverse consequences. Do you know what I mean? So, like, to have a two-strikes rule, it only suits a certain class of people. And for everybody else, the status quo remains. For the people like myself, Timmy, those in prisons, in chronic addictions, and that self-medicate because mental health issues, they're going. They're, they're still criminals, but for the middle class student that gets caught with a bit of weed, he's so much potential. So he won't be able to travel. We'll there be no convictions for them. So that's all that policy is for, you know. And I remember when I was going in and out of prison, there was a female prison officer who's gone really well with. She would say, "What the fuck are you doing in here again?" She says, "Like you shouldn't be in here. You're not committing crimes for money. You're just getting caught with drugs, or you're robbing because of the drugs. Sort the drugs." And I never committed a crime in my life that didn't involve some sort of a drink or a drug, do you know? Mm-hmm. So just, like, do you know, to, and it, when I was working here in homeless services, it was heartbreaking. You could have somebody in homeless services, right, that's after waiting for a few weeks and they finally get a bed, right? And next, they get caught with a bit of heroin and they get three months in prison. Now, they're after waiting a few weeks to get the bed. The bed now was gone. They went to prison for two or three weeks. They get released to the street, Right? And I would have to go through the whole system again to try and get the bed. And it's just, 
if they didn't have the drugs, they'd be in the river. Because how else could you survive such a harsh reality? But our, we punish them instead of offering support, you know. So it's something that I'd be passionate about, you know, around the drug policy. That's what my dissertation was on. And I just see it as very, like, um, it's just a class thing. Do you know what I mean? It's just a class thing. That sounds like that might be a whole other chat that we could have. I know, I know. Yeah. Don't get me started on drug policy. I'm conscious about him. Yeah. See if there's someone listening to this year that can relate to any of the stuff that we've been talking about tonight. What would you say to them? Well, if they're caught up in any form of addiction, um, I'll just repeat what Deborah Matty said at the end when I asked him, you know, um, Try to listen to that voice within that is telling you what to do. Not telling you to go away and get stoned again. That voice that's inside you telling you to, do you know what? Let's get a bit of help. You know, let's 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 do this. Let's let's ask Timmy or James or or, or Enla, where do we go? Where do we get help? You know, who do you know? Just listen to that, because that's the voice I listened to when he said that. I knew that was the voice that, that I listened to inside myself when I was crawling around the floor looking for fucking more drugs and trying to pick up pieces of white paint off the cell floor. That was that voice. I listened to that voice and that's what stopped me from using, you know. Just listen to it. Because for years I would have sat on my own at the end, drugging on my own for four and five and six days, no sleep, and I'd snort cocaine, drop the tablets, drink the, the, the shot, and then two minutes later I'm praying, why am I like this? Why can't I stop? Why, why can't I stop? Like, and, and until this occasion, I listened to that voice because it was so strong in me. You know, um, and ask for help. Don't be afraid. There's absolutely no shame in asking for help with, with, a, with a struggle you have, whether it's addiction or mental health. Ask for the help. The help is there and it's free and people just love helping people to get well because there's nothing better for someone that's already in recovery to see another drug addict get well. But you have to want it, Ella. You have to really want it. And and, and don't sell don't sell yourself short, you know, if if you're if you're unhappy with your life, don't think that or oh, this is it and settle for it. Do you know what I mean? If you might have wild dreams and aspirations that you think are fantasies no, they're not fantasies. Do what you can today to make it a realization, you know. And like when you start out and you have these mad goals, and when you there's a saying in recovery, you know, when you put down the drink and the drug, you can have a wife, a life beyond your wildest dreams. And I thought mm-hmm. Ferraris and fucking mansions and you know all these things, but the podcast, the PhD, the car, mm-hmm. the wife, the education, the, the family, the dogs, mm-hmm. all these things. I could never have imagined I'd do any of the stuff being invited up to the hours by Michael D, having chats with Christian and email. These is that's the wife the life beyond your wildest dreams that you're promised and it's promised for everybody. But as long as you know as Timmy said, you have to reach out, you have to push yourself out of your comfort zone, take a healthy risk and pick up the phone. Do you know what the one do you know when I started working on a visualization of what I wanted in my own life? Do you know what I wanted? And I kept visualising, and I said it earlier on, I visualised my future self being well, mentally well and able. It was never for any material stuff. Mm. You know, it wasn't for a car or a house. 
the most important thing to me was a bit of peace, a peace in my life, a bit of peace in my head, you know, and I got it. And I got it because I put it up there. That's what I wanted, you know. And I'm a very, very firm believer, and, and, and I talk to James about it quite a bit. Make sure you know what you want and start putting it up there. You know, and that could be good or bad. If you're constantly thinking of bad stuff and you're putting it up there, bad stuff is going to happen. Sure, it'll be happen. It will happen, like, the bad stuff will happen. And trust me, I know that it does happen because I've had a situation. My understanding of that came through a bad situation, not a good one. I had... I had this feeling over me that the guards were going to knock... This is after prison now. This feeling over me that the guards were going to knock at my door. And every time there was a knock at the door, I had this feeling that it was a guard at the door for something, something in my past or whatever. And I actually created that fucking experience. And it happened. But it was for road traffic that I was after fucking getting... Long story. (laughs) But it was for road traffic, right... But I actually created that. Because every time there was a knock at the door, I'd get this feeling of fear. You know, and it it was a feeling of fear, a guard knocking at the door, but it was never for what, what they would knock for. And that feeling was there because when I was caught up in addiction, the only time I'd all knocked was when there was a fucking guard looking for me. And I had that ingrained into my my body, you know. That, That feeling of fear was ingrained into me. And when that happened, I was practic. I, I was understanding. I was doing Doctor George Spencer's work at that time. And when that happened, it was like, "Fuck that! No, that's not happening again." Do you know what I mean? That's not fucking happening again. And I started to understand it. And now when I have these shitty fucking unconscious thoughts from my past, do you know these insecure thoughts or anything that negativity thoughts, I just cut them there and then. Cut them. And I start visualising the house I'm going to build in two years' time. I start visualising the podcast, where it's going to be in 12 months' time. You know, I start visualising the things we're going to do in the next few months, years. They're the things that are there. We're going, to, we're going to have a studio, it's going to be unreal. We're going to have a little coffee shop in there, we're going to do seminars and have speakers come in. Mm. And we're going to have a fucking, we're going to grow, the Patreon is at about 200, we're going to grow that to 1,000 in the next two years. And we're going to, you know, um, maybe do a full time, um, maybe look after our wives, maybe employ them, something mm-hmm. like that. I think these are all very fucking achievable stuff, you know. And all these good things come from each other. Like this coffee shop comes from growing a Patreon, you know, they're all things we're pumping back in, you know, and it's all things that we're going to be helping people. Imagine mm-hmm. us sitting down having a cup of coffee, right? And it's, it's a little recording studio and the two of us are fucking doing a podcast inside and there's people outside sitting down drinking their coffee. And we're implying people that's you know? coming from a treatment centre. Do you know what I mean? Their first job in here is, do you know? And you're creating a little space where there's no alcohol or drugs and people just come in, no judgement, like your gym, do you know? The misfits and give them a space where they can stone, have a cup of tea, have a, a sandwich. Um, that's, the, that's the vision I have, especially, you know, mm. You've beautiful space here, and I just see like this is something that you know yeah. we need as well. Yeah, we're we're on the, the the lookout for for a space at the moment, and and we will we'll stay looking out, and we'll wait, and and the right one will come. You know, if if we are to open up a coffee shop, it more or less have to be somewhere 
where we can get people in, where it's easy for people to access and stuff like that as well. And we've been open for eight years now, for four years in here, and it was only two weeks ago we were in this room for the night before the first protest that was mm. for Palestine a couple of weeks ago, and there was like eight or nine of us in here all making signs for the protest, and I just looked around and I was like, this is exactly what I was thinking of like yeah. eight years ago, that's something would reach yeah. this point where people are just in here doing stuff like this. Yeah. Mm, yeah. This is an amazing space. Yeah, I know. It's, it's just so free. If that's the right word, that's the word that came into it. No, no, when you come into this space, it's just a real sense of community, mm. isn't it? It's just yeah. a real sense of community and inclusion, and you know, non-judgmental space for people to be in. You know, that's what you get here. Thanks, man. No, it's a, it's it's your your yeah. space is an extension of yourself. Yeah, thank you. Yeah. Yes. And it's it's true. It's a real sense of truth and, and, and standing up for your beliefs and not just ethical beliefs, but deep down, real love and fucking, do you know, it's just an inspirational space, you know, and, and what you do here, even even the training you do for people with disabilities, that's, that's un-fucking real. Yeah. Sorry, I don't feel using language, but... Uh, <laughs> If you were working with me now, you'd hear language lots of the day. I think that we'll probably have something in common in that, like the stuff that you're doing and the stuff that we're doing here. Ultimately, it's just there to um, hold a space for people to be themselves. Yeah, it's just another medium, isn't it? Just to, you know, exactly. It's just to help people, you know, whether it be a podcast, a gym, a coffee shop or something. It's just to give people a space to heal. Yeah. That's what I suppose.